0: For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively you can find our new patreon page at patreon.com then search for resilience space unraveled so let's get started enjoy the show so hi and welcome to resilience unraveled today as you know i like to interview people who either are specialists in the field or people with remarkable stories and today i'm talking to ryan campbell and he has well, remarkable is only half the picture. So good. First of all, hi, Ryan.
1: Hey, yeah. Uh, thanks for having me.
0: And I can tell by your um, fantastic ex- accent that you're from, from one of the colonies, by the sense of things.
1: I, well, I used to live where you live. And then I think my great grandfather of some form stole some bread. And we ended up in uh, a little <laughs> island down south. So a, but, uh, definitely an Australian, but now based in
0: Nashville, Tennessee, actually. Very good. Interesting. It's good. It's amazing, isn't it, uh, how people travel around now compared to, um, you know, just just 50 years ago. It's quite remarkable.
1: It's a, yeah, absolutely. And as with a background in aviation, I tell everyone when we jump in a small airplane and go for a fly that, you know, 75 years ago, this wasn't possible. This idea of personal flight. And here we are in our own flying machine, you know, having
0: a look at the world from above. So we're lucky humans to live when we do. Yeah. And why, why? Here am I getting distracted already. But um, why? Well, I've never been in a small aeroplane. I've been in the biggies, obviously, like most people, the big sort of commercial jets and such like. But why would anyone want to get into those small planes? What, what's the attraction? I
1: think the big aeroplanes, you know, like it's just a means to an end and the passion's kind of been pulled out of that now. Uh, with how often we you know spend time on EasyJet or jet blue or you know these budget airlines and yeah. you know to get in a small airplane is just like being in a car and it's freedom beyond freedom you know you want to go left you go left you want to go up down you want to go look at that tree or that barn or zoom down over that beach you get the freedom to do it and um, I am addicted to it it's brought the the most positive parts of my life and it's brought the most negative and I still, yeah, I'm absolutely
0: encompassed by it every day. But surely I'm mean, going to consent. I get that idea of freedom, but I'm guessing there's some risk as well. There is.
1: And, and I am the crooked walking example of that. And uh, for good reason, there is risk and you know what, there's risk in everything. So yeah. do I look at, something that we've only been able to do for 75 years and, and something that's so unbelievable that people for millions of years dreamed of, and then tell myself, I won't do it because there's risk. Yeah. If I start to live that life wrapped up in cotton and wool, you know, that I mean, from a life of adventure and adversity is, is one of the lines I use, you know, the highs of crazy adventures and the lows of, you know, terrible, a terrible accident. I have lived a life of risk mitigation. So I'm, I am a very, Uh, risk averse guy I don't want to go out and do crazy crazy things Uh, I hate standing on ladders but you know aviation is a safe uh, and very rewarding avenue to go down
0: yeah and that's the point isn't it when we think about resilience is that one person's scary exploits or another person's commonplace either work environment or place of pleasure
1: Without doubt, I, I had a conversation only last week with a young guy who I met in a spinal cord rehabilitation facility who uh, had almost lost his life in a base jumping accident. And his hobby was to jump off bridges and buildings and structures and pull his parachute and hope for the best. And yeah. he had been revived on the day that he had his accident twice in the, in the first day. And when I started to talk to him, I thought he was just an adrenaline junkie. And what I soon realized was that base jumping was his form of meditation. Yeah, And it was all about risk management. It was all about being in control of emotions and feelings and fear and absolutely blown away that something I considered so crazy could be something so different to him. Yeah,
0: And it's not just being crazy, isn't it? Is any form of um, activity where there's high degree of expertise and some degree of risk? I mean, even as a musician, you experience this feeling a flow, don't you? And I talk to base jumpers and people like that who say when they're base jumping, when they're bungee jumping sometimes, time stands still or time slows down because you're so in the moment that you cannot be anywhere else. And that, you know, that experience is imprinting itself into your hippocampus and your amygdala and such like, and you're getting one of the most rich experiences of your life. And, you know, that is true. That is true mental growth in a sense, isn't it?
1: hundred percent. And I think, you know, people look at me at 26 and think I'm some you know old man because, you know, I've lived a, a strange life and there's part of me that wishes I was just the kid who, you know, sat on the couch, played PlayStation and ate some chips, but it, um, it hasn't been that way, but the times in my life, uh, yeah, that's what's been, uh, that's what shaped me. And unfortunately for me, the adversity in my life shaped me in a far greater way than the adventure did. And that's something that I love to talk about is, you know, where do we
0: learn our life lessons? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Okay. Then Summer, come on, let's get into this thing then. So tell us your story because it is quite (laughs) remarkable. So you start where you'd like to.
1: It's a long story, but we'll, uh, we'll try the short version. So back when I was uh, six years old, I uh, went on my first overseas holiday with my family and um, that involved jumping on an airliner and flying out to an Island in the Pacific off the East coast of Australia. And, my first overseas trip was actually my parents first overseas trip, so it was at that point in time that six years old that I just fell in love with aviation i'd found my passion. I was a six year old kid who wanted to be a jumbo jet pilot that 's what I told everyone and um, when I was fourteen years old, I uh, found myself two after school jobs and I started to learn to fly and the day that I turned fifteen, I flew an aeroplane for the first time on my own wow. so something that I didn't even know was possible. Common sense said you would have to be old and have a job and you know, have a driver's license. So aviation was a part of my life at a young age. Uh, that uh, drive to do everything at the youngest possible age led to uh, looking out into the world of adventure and trying to see what I could do to be different. I always wanted more. I was never a content kid. So I discovered that the youngest person to have ever flown a single engine airplane solo around the world was 37.
0: Wow, really?
1: The rec- yeah, Absolutely, which blew my mind. And the yeah. record back in around 2008 was broken and it was at 23. Right. So a huge jump. But here I was at 17. Aviation had been my entire life. I had my private license. I was ready to get my commercial, just waiting to turn 18. Uh, I had lived and breathed everything flying and therefore put myself in a position to maybe have a go at this record. Yeah. So what I did was I Googled how to fly solo around the world, being a 17-year-old kid. <laughs> I found a website, I printed off the information and I hid it because I did not want my family, my mom or anyone finding this information, thinking that I was silly enough to think that I could actually fly solo around the world. But after I'd Googled all there was to Google, I ended up in a position where I wanted more. So I decided to go to one of Australia's most famous businessmen, entrepreneurs and aviation adventurers by the name of Dick Smith. And he had been a household name for my mom and dad's childhood, let alone mine. and. How do you get to a guy like that? Well, I Googled Dick Smith's email address because I was 17 and uh, he hates me telling people this, but I found five email addresses. I emailed all five. I said, hey, Dick, I'm 17 years old and I want to be the youngest person to fly solo around the world. What that started was not only a journey where he jumped on board, then I had to tell my parents um, awkwardly one night, but it started the uh, construction of a team. Uh, two years of planning, fundraising over a quarter of a million dollars as a normal Aussie family on a MacBook computer, uh, renting an aeroplane, assembling a team, training as a pilot, preparing, climbing into a single-engine aeroplane at 19 years of age and setting off from Sydney, Australia, eastbound or northeast over the Pacific Ocean for what was a 24,000 nautical mile, 70-day trip to 35 destinations in 15 countries around the world at 19 years old and I was a normal Aussie kid in an airplane that looked like a NASCAR with sponsor you know yeah. stickers all over it and that was a journey that would change my life it was a journey that had highs and lows and everything in between it had yeah. moments where I thrived and loved it. it had moments where I was lonely moments where I was scared and I wanted to go home yeah. you know I saw the world's biggest oceans the you know the largest glaciers the highest volcanoes and mountains and went all the way up to Iceland at the top of the world in my eyes and all the way back down, you know, through Europe and, uh, you know, the Middle East, Asia, back into Australia. So at 19 years old, I I broke that record.
0: Wow, congrats.
1: But it wasn't about the record. It was about the lives that we kind of, you know, had the opportunity to alter along the way.
0: Yes.
1: To the point where I didn't even want the record. You know, it was Mm -hmm. my mum who made me submit the paperwork to get the Guinness World Record Certificate. And Mm -hmm. mums are always right, so I'm glad that I did that now. But... So my life was good. Uh, I signed a publishing deal, uh, published a book called Born to Fly, which we've just re-released here in the US in Americanized version where all the S's become Z's. Yeah, I know. And, yeah. Uh, spelled from, wrong, you mean. <laughs> I'll tell you what. <laughs> spelling mistakes in that book, I knew what to do with but it. But um, I wrote that book as a normal kid and, you know, I went on the Australian speaking circuit and I received he's awards and had these experiences that just blew your mind as a normal kid. I mean, I met, I mean, I'm talking to, I'm, these are your people. You know, I, I met the Royals. I met, um, you know, Prince William and his wife and I met, um, later on Prince Harry and his wife, whether that's a touchy topic or not, I'm not sure, but not with me. <laughs> I met the Royals and you know, I, I was named one of Australia's 50 greatest explorers of all time and put aside names that I was, you know, I read about when I was a kid. Now, i am just a normal kid you know i hate ego and i hate manufactured drama and i decided that although all this life was glamorous i wanted to fly airplanes and particularly my dream was to fly a spitfire the world war ii fighter so my dream was to fly the spitfire so i turned down a job with the airline that i wanted to fly with when i was six years old i turned down a job with qantas and i took a job flying an old 1930s vintage tiger moth um And I was at work one day, a normal day, no records to break, no oceans to cross. And I took off uh, out of this short grass hair strip and the engine failed. And it was myself and another gentleman on board. He was also a pilot. I was taking him for a a fly and the engine failed very low level over the top of trees. Despite everything I did three seconds later, it just, we had a massive accident Mm. and I was the only survivor. Oh, right. And I was cut out of the wreckage and taken to hospital. Uh, Somehow still with us. Uh, I had five breaks in my back, shattered face, shattered right ankle. And I had a spinal cord injury at L1 on my waist, uh, rendering me a paraplegic. So no movement or feeling waist down. What that started was six months in hospital in rehabilitation, 18 months total in rehabilitation and a journey, not just back to walking, but back to flying you know, walking for me was merely a stepping stone, a very naive at the time stepping stone mm. on the way back to flying. Mm. And I'm not sure whether it was stubbornness or disbelief or, you know, just not registering the the reality of my situation. I ended up not just walking. Um, I look like I've had a few too many Tennessee whiskeys, but I, I ended up back flying. Now I, I don't walk properly. My internal systems don't work. I have no calf muscles, no glute muscles minimal feeling below my waist or, or, movement in my feet.
0: Yeah.
1: But, and I, and I don't fly all airplanes, but I went on to fly modified airplanes and then I went on to uh, gain my helicopter license to a commercial standard, having never flown a helicopter before. So as an incomplete paraplegic, right. I became a commercial helicopter pilot. So now I live in the USA, yeah. um, I did say this was a short version of a long story. I now live in the USA based in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm a keynote speaker bringing that speaking. I did after the round the world flight before my accident uh, to a very professional package here in the States where I want to help people learn how to navigate change and how to live, uh, you know, through both adventure and adversity, the highs and the lows and better themselves as a human Um, make themselves stronger. uh, And as you say, more resilient uh, so yeah. that they can tackle whatever comes up to us. Because, I mean, look at, look at the world around us right now. It is a wild, wild journey. Mm. And um, I've learned that by a young age, and I'm excited to honestly share it and see if I can help people know what I know without having to experience what I've experienced.
0: Yes. Yeah. Wow. So where do we start with that? So, first <laughs> of all, amazing story. Um, so in your darkest days, I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times, you know you're lying there in hospital i guess you wake up you discover your body is as your body is where do you get the energy from to start thinking i'm going to start rebuilding myself because you can't you you must have gone through the normal trough and the normal you know shock denial all that sort of stuff where did that that spark come from What, what was it in your head that thought you know i'm going to i'm going to beat this and and come back
1: It was hard and I found myself in the world of self-pity for quite a while. Uh, Disbelief. Uh, Why me? Why did I survive? Um, You know, there were days, many days where I wish I didn't. And, you know, it was a massive news story all around the world and very hard to, to comprehend. So the only reason that I could move on is that I knew that on the day when that failure happened, I did everything I could in my ability with my experience to have the best outcome yeah. and despite what the outcomes were, I, I, I did my best. But all through these troughs and you know, I'm looking for a, I was looking for that moment. I was looking for whatever this little piece of wisdom was going to be to get me moving. I knew where I wanted to be. Eventually, I just didn't know how I was going to get there.
0: Yeah.
1: One day I wheeled out to my mum in the cafeteria and I was in my wheelchair and I said to mum, I've worked it out you know, all these sleepless nights. I've worked it out. I know what's going to get me through this. And her eyes lit up. Like I'd finally, we were getting somewhere finally, you know, like, and I said, I need to, I need to toughen up. And I said it in a, uh, I said it in a much less eloquent way than that. Um, I said to my mom, I need to toughen up. And I think she was a bit taken back, but that was it. I realized that I was in a bad situation and this was going to be a hard road. This yes. is adversity at, at its finest. And for me to get through it, I had to grip my teeth, toughen up and get moving. Yes. And it was a moment where I removed the self-pity. I looked at where I wanted to be. I looked at where I was and I, I got to work. And it didn't mean that it was a perfect smooth sailing road from there on out, but it was a whole lot better than before I'd had that moment of yes. realization.
0: People, people often talk about, their thoughts as if they are the victim of those things which are going on inside their head re- rather than realizing it's the other way around, don't they? And once you once you change your mind, I mean, literally, physically make a decision, actually things just have a habit of falling into place.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm a massive fan of, um, there's a book that was published and it's orange and it's in every airport on the face of the planet. And it's got quite a big uh, swear word across the front of it. And it's the subtle art of not caring a lot. Yeah. And um, in that book, he I'll be honest, I've only read half of it and I need to finish it, but he talks about fault and responsibility. And I know that he didn't come up with that. It's this simple idea of it's not my fault, but I am responsible. And you know what, like we get one life and, you know, we don't always have the ability to control the cards we're handed. So, you know, let's take control of what we can and, I have this statistic that I love. I'm addicted to it. And I think people on my social media hate it because I share it so much, but a national Institute of health study here in the States uh, discovered that of all the things we worry about as humans, we only have the opportunity to change 4% of those worries. So 96% of the things we worry about on a day-to-day basis, you know, and that let's say that statistic is wrong. Mm. And I don't know, you know, let's say it is, that doesn't matter. What matters is that most of the things we worry about on a day-to-day basis we cannot change. So, what are we doing? Yes, you know, life's hard enough as it is. What are we doing worrying about those things? So, I think focusing, toughening up in that moment, and focusing on what I could change was, you know, what started my really honestly a, a pretty miraculous recovery.
0: Really, but I think I think um, the way you've expressed that. Makes it sound extremely easy, and the way I've expressed it makes it sound simple as well. But people don't realize that managing your thoughts is a skill, and I think if it is ninety six percent, it's because people don't know how. And um, and I think actually learn. I mean, you know, we we train people in what we call what what is blithely called mental toughness, and I think the you know people don't know how to think, and you often you know pe- meet people who have come through an education system. Um, no no you know no judgment on which one it is but they've come out without that that sense of uh, accountability so in other words i'm going to do something if it's wrong i'm going to i'm going to say it was me i'm going to you know fess up i'm going to fix it and i'm going to avoid making the same mistake again and it's the same principle as you're talking about isn't it and then life becomes a series of learnings uh, accountability and moving forward and i think for a lot of people the issue is that they they hear that they intellectualize it but they can't actually integrate it and turn it into something in control and that that needs a bit of work and you know with people like yourselves you often find you've got a high degree of purpose so you can follow something and a lot of people just don't do they 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 live what could be described as mundane lives i mean it's really thrilling to be a a soloist a a musician a a premiership footballer a a pilot who's flown around the world But, but most people just go to work and they're you know, stacking shelves or they're doing something that seems, appears to be mundane. I mean, it's interesting now that those people are the most important people in society. But um, it, it is interesting. I thoroughly believe that that's a skill that's just not taught anywhere.
1: Well, I think absolutely. And, and you know, when I look at, you know, I, I envy your educational background where you know so much about this from... You know, like the actual, you know, bones and, and education of it. Whereas I'm just a kid who lived through some wild stuff and I've ended up in this position where I've learned some lessons the hard way, but I want to know more. And that's part of what I do day to day now is is spend my time, you know, obviously learning from guys like you and listening to stories and, you know, diving into the books and trying to, to learn why we feel the way we feel when we experience what we do. And your idea of, you know, like your thoughts on passion and purpose, you know, people who have passion are much better off to get to where they want to, you know, they're more likely to get to where they want to, to go. Right. I had passion. That was aviation. Yeah. When I was in that hospital, I did not want anything to do yes. with aviation. Good. Yeah. And you know what I fell back onto music and specifically yeah. country music. You know, yeah. I love playing guitar and I live in Nashville for a reason. I just, I can't sing to save myself, but I love country music. I discovered in that moment that aviation, the fact it was taken away I'd lost my identity. The very thing that I was known for was now the very thing I was hurt over and I'd lost my identity. And it was a very hard time for me because I would all, I had always had that through the round the world flight, through my flight training. I was a kid at school who was known to be the pilot kid. I was a kid who wrote the book on flying called born to fly. And here I was as a paraplegic plane crash survivor without my identity. So, uh, I think people hundred percent finding their passion is, is key. If you can find a passion, it makes the hard work, not quite as hard. Yeah. Um, but understand that not everyone, you know, maintains one thing throughout their life and you might, you know, come and go to different things and that's okay. You know, as long as you have something at some point in time to look forward to and yeah. motivate you to do what you've got to do on a daily basis, you're laughing.
0: And that's fascinating. And two things, one, which is the identity thing. You're absolutely right. And it's often a feature of males, guys when you chat you, you meet someone and say hi he, what's your name he says i'm, I'm keith i'm an accountant and we often really self-identify with what we do <laughs> don't we i was going to say i'm an alcoholic but no i'm an accountant <laughs> and people immediately especially guys seem to self-identify but you work with people who are footballers who've ended their career they lose their sense of self-identity. People who come out of the army and the armed forces lose that people who have, and you often find that the incidence of um, people falling on hard times is often blamed on a specific event like PTSD, for example. But it's often, as you say, it's that lack of fundamental identity. It's, it's who, who am I now?
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, and and athletes drop or or whatever you want to call it. I'm sure there's a more educated technical term, but when I, I, spent seven, I spent two years fundraising and planning, right, to, to fly around the world. 70 days in an airplane as a 19 year old kid. I look back yeah. now and think, what was I smoking? Yeah. Like, what was I thinking? 70 days where I spent some days, I mean, Hawaii to California was 15.0 hours nonstop in a single engine airplane. And I saw the world in ways that few have ever in history seen the yeah. world. Yeah. you know what I did the day after I arrived home
0: yeah.
1: all these hours and, and days and and weeks of wanting to be back with my family the morning that I woke up the day that I'd, I'd finished the around the world flight I'd done it I was good you know I was, yeah. I'd been on 60 minutes and all the TV shows and the news I woke up I got in my car I left before my mum and dad and my family had woken up my bags were still on the table from literally a history making round the world flight and I went back to the airport to the aeroplane yeah. And I realized at that point in time that I was in trouble.
0: Yeah.
1: Because I had lost I had athletes drop. You yeah. know, and I trust me, I'm not an athlete. You've got me on video. You know I'm not an athlete. Yeah. You know, but I would experienced what they had experienced. You know, that you work up to the Olympics for four years and what happens a day after it's over. And yeah. I think it's important to understand that it doesn't matter whether it's a job or a promotion or any goal we set in life. The goal yeah. is what gets us there.
0: Yeah.
1: But the goal is also a risk because we have to make sure. We understand that that drop is okay, yeah, and is just an indicator that we need to to reassess and and plan for something new and set yeah. some new goals and new direction and and
0: get to work. And in a, and in a funny sort of way, that's a really brilliant observation because the the bigger, more um, single minded, the more more um, time bound, more specific a goal is, the bigger that drop is. I work again in, in my world. You would have a, a theatre production or a concert or a something. Uh, or you'd, you'd finish a show and the show would come to an end and exactly the same thing would happen. The cast the next day would be wondering and going, well, what are we going to do now? Because you'd come together and this, particularly there would be a community. And then you'd all scatter to the winds. And I think, and I think that's absolutely fascinating. And it's, it's fascinating to think the effect that the moving, the Olympics might have on Olympic uh, Olympians at the moment, you know, there's suddenly been training for a year, their goals have all changed. And I think it, for me, it it. it 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 sort of reinforces this, this idea of having multiple rolling goals rather than too many or too few single um, massive goals they used to call them big hairy audacious goals didn't they yeah but it's better to have a few rolling goals than one big hairy one i i think because like you say what happens when you come to the end and this is what yeah. often furnace you know sort of fuels this idea of burnout people are just have they're just They're just used up really once they've got to the end of that process. Yeah. and I
1: I will put my hand up and say that I regularly do that, you know, because I, I I choose what I want to do in life and I'll be honest, moving to the USA and and starting a big speaking business here and knowing what I can do and how I can help. I I know as a normal Aussie kid that I can help some people here and around the world. And then you want to drop a world pandemic on top of that. And I am. And uh, I had a conversation yesterday with someone about how I am burnt out right now. And you know what, that's okay. And I think, you know, this idea of we talk about passion and purpose and identity that lead to a goal. And then we talk about, you know, what happens when that goal is, you know, seen through and, and, and finished. It's in the past. Well, then we have athletes drop. Well, you know, I'm, I'm in the business of solving problems. And when I look at the athletes drop side of things, it is a skill that we need to all develop yeah. to be able to manage what happens when our goals are successful yeah. and manage the implementation of something new That's it. to get us onto a new journey. Because what's the other option to live a mundane, boring life where we never experience athletes drop because we never get high enough to fall. That's, it. That's the key.
0: And I think it's, you know, people do live mundane lives because because they they aren't able to manage the risk, which is where we came in. And, and another thing, of course, is there's a very popular American... Well, it comes a lot out of American literature, which is this idea of finding your passion, that once you have found your passion, everything will be fine, which is great for the, those people who are wired that way. But there are a lot of people wired the other way, which is they actually find their passion from figuring out what they don't want to do. And actually... I remember an old colleague of mine used to say to me this and it was an idea of Joe Dispenza's and he used to say basically do whatever you do with whatever you're doing and, and allow that to become your passion. Yeah. And I think that's interesting is because a lot of people put off action because they're waiting to find their passion rather than saying do you know what I'm just going to get on so you've launched a speaking career you'll find your passion in that speaking career and that's a different form of energy. To actually saying, well, actually, you know, I'm i I'm, I'm going to wait. To fi- I'm going to under wait to be somehow, you know, have some sort of shattering light of and en- you know enlightenment coming yeah. from on on high.
1: Yeah, and and like you've touched on something that I'm really passionate about, and this attitude of saying, if I get X or if yes. I do X, I'll be okay. Correct. No, yeah. that's like. So, I speak on the three-step checklist to navigating change. When I'm flying an airplane, when a pilot's flying an airplane and a red light comes on and something's wrong, right? There's there's an issue. He does not just start pulling levers and pressing buttons. He pulls out a checklist and he works through a checklist in a systematic order. It doesn't matter who is in that seat. They have been trained to use that checklist and it provides a systematic approach to overcoming that challenge, right? The three-step checklist for me, one is gratitude. Find thankfulness before you even begin to overcome a challenge or work through it. Find thankfulness and gratitude for something in it. You have to. I found thankfulness for the fact I was a paraplegic over a quadriplegic. I had movement. I had opportunity. I had the ability to adapt. You know, I had a life ahead of me that I really thought was going to be pretty cool, whether I walked or not. The second is confidence. Find confidence in your ability to overcome the problem. So you're now thankful for it. Be confident. And do that by locking in the next step. understand you don't need to know the entire process yeah. locking the next step. but the third one is really what I you know want to talk about now and that's resilience gratitude, yeah. confidence and resilience. Resilience for me is anticipate the need to adapt. Anyone who says to you that they have a solution that is going to make it all okay mm. ongoing forever, they're intoxicated or they're selling a course online, one or the yeah. other. Oh, yeah. And I,
0: <laughs> it is so, like, like,
1: <laughs> I shouldn't say that because one day I'll sell a gonna, course online. Say, but, and here's my new <laughs> online course. <laughs> yes. um, the thing is, nothing that we can provide, not the most amazing teachers in the whole wide world, no life experience, there is no perfect uh, golden nugget of wisdom that allows you to live a life free of adversity. But if you anticipate the need to adapt, accept the fact that adversity is part of a life of your life and then anticipate the need to adapt, be ready for it. Understand that on the journey to growing a speaking business or on a 24,000 mile flight around the world, or God forbid, walking again, learning to walk again, you know, that really is one step at a time. Understand that whatever your journey is in life, having kids, going to school, you know, finding new friends, whatever. The need to adapt around the adversity that you will find on your path is 100% guaranteed. If you anticipate it, when it comes time to, you know, where you, you've got to face up to that adversity, it's not a shock. Yeah. You know, be ready for it. And then when it pops up, go, okay, this is merely part of the journey. Yeah. And that has been my way to take very hard times and normalize them so that I have the mindset that I need to be able to work around them the best yeah. that I can. It doesn't mean, again, it's not, it doesn't make adversity go away because there is, as I said, no gold nugget to make that happen. But by anticipating the need to adapt, that's the closest thing I've found to that gold nugget. It's the closest thing I've found to making a very hard road a little bit more
0: to- tolerable. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah, you're spot on, spot on. And I think it's interesting, isn't it, that three people look at the same event, one will consider it to be good, one will consider it to be bad, and one will consider it to be adversity. And I think yeah. it comes down again to this mental toughness that we have in the way that we see and examine the external world.
1: Yeah. And
0: uh, there are people at the moment getting wrongly bent out of shape by the the crisis, and yet they're relatively in a good place. And there are people who are really struggling and. And really, in desperate situations, who are you know coming back and fighting this thing, and yeah, you know, making the best of what the life that you know the, the way that uh, life's been dealt at the moment. So uh, you know, yeah. getting getting a grip of your own life and your own thoughts, I think, is always the secret. I love I love what you're talking about. That we call it building capacity, and uh, you know, you have a different phrase, but effectively, it's the same thing. Is that I like I yeah. like that golden bullet? Well, and no and here, he,
1: one thing I really believe is, you know, when I was uh, my first day in the rehabilitation gym, I was laid out on a bed and my nurses and physiotherapists were all around me. And it was the first time I'd been out of my wheelchair, first time I could do so because of the pain. And they said to me, all right, your job today is to roll over. So I'm on my back like a newborn baby. Your job is to roll over. Yeah. This was a day that changed my life. And this is a day that led to my you know, my urge to want to be a speaker was that I, I loved a challenge. I didn't care what the challenge was okay, you want me to roll over? Watch this. Yeah. And I, I made a plan. I lifted up my right leg, placed it over my left leg. And I thought, okay, if I could then just twist the top half of my body and kind of unwind, like I'm going to be okay. Everyone was kind of looking at me funny, sad. I kind of thought that was really morbid. So I made a joke about looking like a fish out of water. Like I'm so now I'm the guy who has to learn to roll over and lighten the mood in the room. Yeah. And as I rolled over the pain in my back from all the metal and everything, Five breaks in my back was excruciating and I like to think I'm pretty tough. So I stopped and I looked through a hole in my arm and you know, this little gap my arm had made and I looked up and I saw Ben for the first time, the quadriplegic with no movement or feeling below his chest, early thirties, you know, mopping his girlfriend's floor. Seriously, hit his head. That's it. Now I looked at Ben and that moment changed my life because in that moment I realized what Ben would have given For one chance at rolling over. Exactly. And here he was doing these minimal exercises with his wrists, and that's what he would do long term. I knew what he would give. And what that was was the harshest injection of perspective, and not just perspective, but the power of perspective that I have ever experienced in my life. And it goes to show that there is no golden nugget because we all have our own unique view on the one situation correct we can't uniform anything to make everyone happy it just doesn't work that way but what ben showed me in that moment was that i always have to make sure i look at my own life from other people's shoes yeah and in this crisis right now there are a lot of people out there who are struggling yeah the thing is though just because someone this is the rule for me we can look up through a glass ceiling at people who have it worse than us Correct. and we can use their stories as perspective. I can look up at Ben, he's a quadriplegic and go, you know what? I am lucky yeah. to be a paraplegic, but the floor to look down at people who have it better than you, but still have their own problems. That is not a class floor. Yeah. You do not get to look at people with issues that you believe are not as bad as yours and write their issues off. Correct. A five-year-old kid bullied at, at daycare. His mental kind of you know process and how he feels may as well as be as bad as someone in a spinal cord injury ward so always look up see the people who have it worse use that as perspective but never belittle the people who have problems who are not as bad as yours that's it's not our place to judge is it it's not
0: it it really isn't it's our place to help
1: you know so how can we help
0: you've summarized for me what we describe as tough love there so there you go there
1: you go yeah. thank you yeah
0: no if people would like to get hold of you i'm just sort of respectful of your time ryan and um if people would like to get hold of you uh, to look discuss with you sort of speaking opportunities or talk to you about the, the the development that you do um how will they get in touch with you what's what how would you recommend that might happen? they can
1: jump on we spend a lot of time on linkedin so they can jump on and find me ryan campbell on linkedin however yeah. The website's a great place to go. You can contact me directly or the team. Uh, that is Co. I couldn't afford the M. So ryancampbell.co. And that's Campbell with a P. So um, ryancampbell.co. Feel free to reach out. I would love to chat.
0: Ryan, it's been an absolute joy to talk to you today. And I think you've, uh, you've given me tons to think about. That's a really fascinating. You reminded me of some really special stuff. Uh, so I do a thank you. It's been fascinating.
1: Awesome. Now, I, no, I, again, I, I just love chatting and love to learn from other people. And I appreciate you having me on.
0: No problem. You take care. You too. Thanks, mate. Hi, everybody. I hope you found that episode useful and interesting. Feedback is always welcomed. And if you're in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively... You can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.